action. Welcome to Taunt Stubs with me, photographer Robert Gershenson, and Josh Winning, the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And we're going to the movies to celebrate the release of Joshua's new book, The Shadow Glass, available now. We are deep diving into the best of 1980s sci-fi and fantasy and seeing what got Joshua's creative juices bubbling. I really hate it when you say that. <laughs> For this episode, we're taking a trip down Toontown. We watched Who Frames Roger Rabbit from 1988, directed by Robert Zemeckis. Josh. Hollywood. 1947. Booze pickled private detective Eddie Valiant, played by Bob Hoskins, is hired to find out if Hollywood star Jessica Rabbit, voiced by Kathleen Turner, is cheating on her husband, Roger Rabbit, voiced by Charles Fleischer. The investigation turns sour when the owner of Toontown is found murdered, and Judge Doom, played by Christopher Lloyd, believes Roger did it. When Roger pleads Eddie for help, Eddie must set aside his own hatred of Toons in order to pardon an innocent rabbit and uncovers a conspiracy that goes right to the heart of Toontown. Robert, you were really happy when I said, let's do this film. (laughs) I was. Why is that? (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I love this film so much. It was the second film ever that I saw in the cinema. No way. I remember so vividly going to see it. So you were five years old? I was five, yeah, over five years old, yeah. Wow. I saw it at the Odeon in Golders Green, which is by the station, but it's now a Sainsbury's. Oh. And in my family, we... framed Sainsbury's? (laughs) In my family, we always joked that this was the first film my brother saw because my mum was pregnant with him at the time. Oh, that's cute. Is he anything like Roger Rabbit? (laughs) He, uh, yeah, he's a rabbit. It's such a fucking great movie. It's brilliant, yeah. It's one of those films that, as a kid, you just don't appreciate necessarily how good it actually is and how difficult this kind of thing is to actually not only pull off, but pull off well. Um, Yeah, I mean, look, animation aside, getting a film that has a script as strong and as shit-hot as this is tough. But then on top of that, you've got the technical aspects. So it's almost like every element of this film every person they're all working on uh like full steam they are they are like top of their game and this comes at a place in robert zemeckis's career where he's on this amazing this this amazing sort of back to back to back making brilliant films romance in the stone then he goes on to the back to the future then from back to the future who framed roger rabbit then back Mm. to the future part two and three death becomes a forest gum contact castaway he just had one of the best 15 year periods yeah i think any filmmaker has ever had absolutely and you know he clearly knows his stuff and it's he's an interesting filmmaker because he's of that same generation of filmmakers who were at the forefront of pushing technology and they really wanted to find stories that would help them to see what they could really do with cinema so obviously there was before that there was steven spielberg um after him came jj abrams uh but you know 
um, Robert Zemeckis James was Cameron all about. in between. James Cameron, exactly. Yeah, the, one of the big ones. Mm. Um, and so it's great to see him do a film like this as opposed to a film like The Polar Express. Yeah. Because this has so much heart. It has, even though the technology is incredible, it's not about the technology. You know, the, there's the novelty of the fact that you've got cartoons interacting with not only real people but also real props like mm. guns and trash cans and cars and things like that you know it it's kind of it's not just about the tech it's about what they're actually trying to achieve with the tech whereas things like the polar express seem to be all about look what we did and isn't it amazing and it's just not got the same resonance i think yeah Roger Rabbit is story first, technology used to bolster the story. Polar mm. Express is all about the technology and who gives a fuck what the story's about. And didn't he do like a, a Christmas Carol Did thing a Christmas as well? Carol. Yeah, he does a lot with um, with motion capture. He, yeah. he seems to absolutely love it. Or 3D technology. He used 3D technology on The Walk and it's a terrible, terrible movie. Because it's, not enough It really is, sucks. Yeah, not enough is... Um, not enough effort is is put into making it a decent script and a character that you can not even necessarily like, not even necessarily empathise with, but just understand. Yeah, it, yeah, it's a shame because you almost feel like you've we've now lost Robert Zemeckis down a rabbit hole. He's gone into technology world, mm. um, and you wonder if he's ever going to be able to do anything as good as this again. I hope so. I hope so, because, you know, that run of films is phenomenal. And I go back to those films over and over and over again. Back to the Future, yeah. Death Becomes Her. Oh, brilliant. Just absolutely brilliant her. films where the scripts are so shit hot. The characterization is amazing. And the characterization here is phenomenal. The, mm -hmm. the ideas are just brilliant. Starting this film off with... A cartoon in the style of the old sort of Warner Brothers or Looney Tunes or the Max Fleischer to yeah. start the film off with a short film and then go into the real world is yeah. such a genius idea to grab the attention and to just in two cuts basically say this is the world we're in cartoons yeah. are real yeah the segue from fully animated sequence into pulling out of that refrigerator that rabbit that mm. Roger Rabbit's got stuck in to find out we're actually in the real world and he's filming a cartoon with all the like the props around him and stuff it's so so clever and it immediately yeah, it just immerses you immediately into that world it's also clever because the animation is heightened it's not it's not got that same it's not quite the classic animation of Tom and Jerry it's got a 3D aspect to it, even when we're watching an actual cartoon. It's got, you know, characters have reflections and there's sort of like forced perspective things going on. And it's really clever because it, it kind of, it prepares you for the surreal quality of the visuals within that that opening cartoon. Very clever. But, but it, it, it is, I mean, it's strange because it doesn't, it doesn't feel surreal because Roger and Jessica and all the other animated characters have been rendered in such a way that they have shading and they have shadow. They have a 3D quality. They're actually 
in that world. It doesn't yeah. feel like they have been placed on top of the film negative, which of course they have. They were, right? Yeah. <laughs> they they obviously were, right? But there yeah. is a great shot of um, Zemeckis directing Christopher Lloyd, and they've drawn Jessica Rabbit into the photograph as if she was there receiving oh, direction, amazing. right? <laughs> but even that doesn't feel out of place. It doesn't yeah. feel out of place because, you know, with other times where they've had animated characters and a live action person on screen together, it's never felt, it's never felt seamless. It, it feels very separate. Eyelines are off, whatever. But mm -hmm. little things like Jessica Rabbit coming in and interacting with Eddie, taking his hat off or um, taking... Um, the Acme guy's uh, handkerchief out and, and yeah. wiping his head in, in a really playful yeah. way or uh, taking Eddie's tie. The characters, the animated characters, actually have an effect on the real-life world that they just happen to be in. And it could yeah. be, you know, the fact that when the lamp is swinging, when Eddie's trying to soar off the handcuffs yeah and the lamp is swinging that lamp the light is changing on roger mm. he's not just brightly lit as if he is in a cartoon there's real world consequences reflected in how those characters are rendered and it completely yeah. sells it it is such a joy to watch yeah i think when they did early tests of you know, trying to figure out if they could actually accomplish this. The thing they discovered that was key to it was that interaction between animated uh, characters and the real life objects that they actually have an effect on. So there's like a test, there's a bit of test footage, not with Bob Hoskins, with a different actor who was just obviously there for the day. And he goes down a set of steps and then animated Roger Rabbit comes down the steps and he bumps into a trash can, he knocks something over, you know, and that's the thing that really sells it and makes it work and like rogers uh, robert zemeckis didn't make it easy he basically said to the animators i'm going to shoot the film mm. and then you can figure out how to get how to fit the characters into the frame that i've shot basically so obviously he <laughs> accounted for the characters being there so he didn't completely screw them over but he did basically just sort of trust in them that they would be able to figure it out but and seems like when um, when Roger, so not when 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 Eddie first goes into the bar where Jessica Rabbit is going to sing, there's there's all these objects on strings and on like robotic wheels and stuff, or puppet. There's pu like puppeteers above the set who are dangling sort and of cocktail below. shakers and stuff below them, mm. and so for the animators to actually not only animate characters holding all this stuff, but actually sort of figure out where there's an object moving within the frame after the matter as well you know they could have they could have just had like a floating glass go by at one point <laughs> having, having forgotten to put a penguin in there or something you know it, it is genius and also the animators were clearly very experienced and when the problems did arise like if eddie's eyeline was off slightly they mm. would come up with solutions so towards the end when Eddie is going to confront um, Arcane Maroon, his eyeline yeah. is about a foot too high. So uh, the animators just had Roger 
go up against the wall on tiptoes as if he's being like a super spy. <laughs> so the eye line matched. Or hilarious. If Bob Hoskins' eye was a little too high in the bed scenes, then they just had Roger's hand come up, and that's what Eddie's looking at. Mm. Absolutely genius, and it's seamless. Yeah, it is seamless. You just completely buy it. Yeah, watching it this time, it's weird. When we when I watch films, and I'm sure you're like this. When I watch films just for myself, it's just for entertainment. Yeah. When we watch it for the pod, it's almost like I'm watching it for the very first time and I'm watching mm-hmm. it with a critical eye. Yeah. I really became acutely aware that this film says something about the insidious nature of corporations owning IPs. Yeah, like the, it has Acme versus, was it Maroon Studios? Yeah. And they're competing over who owns the cartoons, right? But more than that, I think it reflects what goes on in the real world. Look at what Marvel have done and look at what Star Wars, happening to Star Wars. Look what Disney are doing to these IPs that have been around for years. They buy them and then they just completely exploit them. Yeah. They're basically working them to death. (laughs) Yeah. And the, the the kind of the joke, I guess, in Roger Rabbit is that these IPs are actually living beings yeah that have been completely raked over the coals by a a greedy executive i mean could it be said that the toons are second-class citizens who are slaves to the humans well yeah like that's the that's the thing that did strike because i haven't i used to watch this film over and over and over as a kid and i haven't really gone back to it as much as some of my other favorites from the 80s but watching it now as a grown-up it really was like figuring out this world where there's there clearly is something going on you know judge doom is a really fascinating character because he as it turns out is a tune but he treats all other tunes as second class citizens and things to be disposed of you know he callously kills that shoe (laughs) very early on and nobody really bats an eyelid when he does i mean they're kind of obviously shocked by it but he isn't charged with murdering that shoe no, he hasn't broken the law. So what yeah. What legal status do Toons have? If it was flipped, if Roger had been murdered, would Arcane Maroon or uh, Acme, would they have had charges pressed against them? Or would it have been like, oh, you killed the Toon. Yeah, I guess because there's this idea that Toons are unkillable, that's maybe where the the break in morality comes from you know when when judge doom does figure out how to kill tunes that's kind of like a game changer but before that presumably it's sort of like they're they're just these wacky things that live around us they don't necessarily have to eat or sleep or drink or anything but it's very telling that there's no law to prohibit the the destruction of the tunes yeah it's yeah it's really weird it doesn't make any sense but i guess because they're kind of like aliens like they live in their own toon town mm. but they can come into our world for work so i guess it's interesting because in toon town they're not that special you presume and that's partly why i never really loved the section in toon town because suddenly it was less interesting it was, there was less of like you just had eddie in toon town it wasn't 
on its own, Toontown isn't particularly interesting. No, the it fact that very it's very exhausting being there. It unbelievably exhausting. <laughs> yeah, it's so loud. <laughs> when does anyone get any peace and quiet in Toontown? <laughs> I know they're all just completely mad. Yeah, just hopped up on caffeine. You know, it's, too much sugar. It's like a nineties rave. I imagine that's what. <laughs> goes on in Bez's head Bez from the Happy Mondays that's what goes yeah. on in his head all the time Toontown oh man did you find that with Roger though because Roger as a watching it as a grown up I kind of I think that if I hadn't seen this before I probably would have found Roger unbearably irritating <laughs> but as a kid I just loved him well he has to make jokes doesn't he you know he mm-hmm. you know Eddie's like you could have taken your hand out of that any time yeah. he goes not at any time only when it's funny and that is a that is a brilliant piece of observation by the writers that's going, so so well, funny if these tunes if they only have one motivation and that's to be in these zany loony cartoons then yes in real life they are beholden to always trying to make people laugh so it's gonna mm. have a detrimental effect on their relationships not with just each other but with the humans on the other side of the wall yeah it is a brilliant brilliant observation and it's a great little plot point because if he if he had taken his wrist out of the cuffs beforehand we wouldn't then have roger at the bar which is almost his downfall yeah that's that line had my boyfriend absolutely howling he'd never seen the film before what um He'd never seen it, so he had no idea what to expect, and oh he loved God. it. Oh my God! I know, but that line is is genius. It's the kind of line that you're just like, God, if I could write one line like that, that <laughs> yeah. does so many things, it makes you laugh, but it tells you so much about this world as well. It's and genius. It takes you, tells you so much about the character of Roger, and the, yeah. the biggest strength of this film is its characterization and its world building, and the storytelling through characterization but before i come on to that there is one joke that i never understood until a couple of years ago it's when it's when eddie's at the club and he asks for a scotch on the rocks and then he goes and i mean ice as a kid (laughs) when the drink arrives i always read it as the ice was so mean it had discolored (laughs) Oh, <laughs> mean didn't, ice. Yeah, I didn't read that it was actually <laughs> going to be rocks. I don't even know what Scotch on the Rocks was. Yeah. Um, is Jessica Rabbit a feminist's worst nightmare? Oh, yeah. I was watching Jessica Rabbit very closely, trying to figure out exactly what is going on there, because clearly she is a fantasy figure. Her Her proportions are of the type that if she was a real person she would be dead um she's actually quite hideous like if you if you really look at her she's quite grotesque to look at (laughs) she's got an enormous forehead um barely any nose big eyes huge lips obviously massive boobs tiny tiny waist like she's actually quite grotesque and she's clearly playing into the femme fatale thing Particularly with that line when she's like, oh my God, it's dip. Yeah. (laughs) She probably (laughs) screams. Yeah, she's playing into a trope. But the fact that she's a cartoon kind of gives it added meaning and takes away any of the grossness of sort of that, that kind of male gaze thing, maybe. What do you think? I think it's, I think she is a subversion of the femme fatale. Yeah. We're led to believe 
that she probably had a hand in Roger's um, framing. Framing, yeah. Oh God, it's in the title. God, right. So <laughs> we, we're led to believe that she's bad, and as she says, she's not bad. She's just drawn that way. So yeah, almost like the filmmakers are saying, it's not Jessica's fault. This is what we as filmmakers are being dealt with. You know, we. This is the hand that we are playing with, and it turns mm. out that everything that she does is not for her own gain. She's very devoted to Roger. She doesn't turn out to be involved in any way because often the femme fatale is caught up and she acts in a way that is um often against her better nature because she's Mm. a tragic figure and jessica doesn't turn out to be a tragic figure she just turns out to be a woman in a man's world trying to fight against the system because she can see an injustice happening yeah and a lot of the stuff that she does is kind of off screen so you're left you're left wondering. You, she has a, an aura of mystery around her. But then when you find out what's actually going on, the, the, the little pieces that you've seen her doing, like running away from the studio after mm. what's his maroon's been shot and things like that, um, it all kind of ties together and makes sense. So the, the, the script is playing around with the fact that we have a preconceived idea of what kind of role a femme fatale plays. But yeah, actually she's just a devoted wife and she was she was only playing patty cake with him (laughs) she wasn't sleeping with him (laughs) no patty cake (laughs) that is that's actually brilliant it's so meta because when he's flipping through the photos that's animation yeah exactly it's It's brilliant fucking genius is eddie a good person he's at his heart he is a good person just like Dolores says, played by the amazing Joanne Cassidy. I'm right on top of that, Rose. Um, She she says, I've already found a good guy and he is a good guy. He's just fallen on really hard times. You know, he's gutted Mm. by the death of his brother. Not only the death of his brother, but like the, the unsolved murder. He's never found the tune who killed his brother. Uh, And so... Obviously, he is also a trope. You know, the second you you meet him, the first thing he does is take a swig of scotch Mm. and he hates tunes. Perfect. He's the jaded gumshoe. Yeah, he's not a bad person. He's just um, a miserable person. (laughs) But it's it's his story. He's the only one who gets an arc, really. He starts off being... I mean, his first line Roger gets stars at the end. Yeah. He looks stars. But that's not... It's not like he's learned anything new. He just... That was an accident. He didn't know that was going to happen. He's still, you know, if he was to shoot the cartoon the next day, he'd probably be like, shit, birds. (laughs) Right? It's got to be real peril. Eddie's first line is literally, tunes. Then he takes a swig. So we learn everything Mm -hmm. that we need to about Eddie. And there's that wonderful shot where he comes back and he's got the bottle of whiskey and he starts drinking and the camera drifts over Mm. all the photos and the newspaper clippings and we just get to see this backstory and we start piecing together shit that we've been told over the past 15 minutes like he had a brother and his dad is the guy from the greatest showman isn't he (laughs) yeah (laughs) his dad is hugh jackman yeah Hugh Jackman is his dad. But th- yeah. those newspaper clippings are brilliant. Like, Huey, Dewey and Louie are returned because they were kidnapped. Yeah. And then Goofy was cleared of spy charges. <laughs> I know. 
before is, the Cold War. Is, That's just unrealistic. Is, is Goofy a, a Nazi? Is he a Russian? Is he working for yeah. the Japanese? What's going on? <laughs> but it's, it's great. It builds this amazing world that has so much weight and history. And it's done so economically. It's within the first 15, 20 minutes. You know everything you need for the whole film. That's yeah. that's Zemeckis. His films move so quickly. You know, he packs yeah. a lot into Back to the Future. He packs a lot into this. He packs a lot into Death Becomes Her. They're not bloated. They're, they are so fat-free, and it's such a joy to watch. The idea of the, the weight of history and the nostalgia for past times and the dust and the, the, the dirt and the cobwebs on his brother's side of yeah. the desk just tells you everything you need to know about Eddie that they were successful yeah. now he's he's a bum he's on his hard times he can't even afford to get on the the trolley has to go on the back with the kids I love that visual of Roger Rabbit's fingers wiping off some of the dust on his brother's chair yeah because it's almost like he's been waiting for somebody to come along even if it is fucking Roger fucking Rabbit but he's waited for somebody to come along and sort of you know chuck all this stuff up in the air and say you know come on let's let's move on from this now actually and it is the roger case that does it because by the end he loves tunes he's he's rekindled Mm -hmm. his love for tunes and it's there momentarily when he bumps into betty boop yeah she goes boop boop bidoo i still got it and he's got like a genuine smile on his face he's like yeah you've still got it so somewhere in there he still loves tunes. He just can't get over the, the trauma. He can't get over the trauma. The trauma. He can't get over that trauma of of his brother having the piano dropped on his head. Yeah. Oh, God. That visual of the um, the safe dropped on Acme's head. Is it Acme? Yeah. When you get the body outline, like this, it's actually really quite dark, this film. Like, it's there's, brutal. It's really brutal. Yeah, like you don't, there's no blood or anything, but just the, the idea of that corner of that safe <laughs> going into his head. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's equally is um, satire because that's exactly what happens in cartoons all the time is that yeah. kind of stuff. But then to see it done to a person and they die, it's got a real layer of darkness to it, this film. But that's where the stakes are, right? Humans can yeah. die, tunes can't. But mm-hmm. no one seems to care when a toon is murdered in front of them and they're policemen, but they care when the human dies and they seem incest that a toon, a toon, a toon has murdered a human. Is this man removing evidence from the scene of a crime? Doc- Dr. Doom. Judge Doom. Dr. Doom. Judge Doom's entrance is, is yeah. a masterclass in sort of satire and storytelling because yeah. it's... Eddie picking up the hand buzzer and as he's picking it up Doom's cane comes in to set it off then Mm. he gets the the zapper used on him Eddie uses it on him this zapper thing represents goofy comedy and goofy kind of cartoons and yet it's being used on someone who doesn't want anyone to know he's a toon but they seed it so well the teeth the fact that in the bar when Eddie knocks over the, the vat of dip and the dip is gushing on the floor. Yes. He's very quick he to back. step back, otherwise he'd be melting. Yeah. But so do all the other patrons, so it kind of hides it in plain sight because you're like, yeah, they, they don't want it on them either. 
But did you notice how Doom's coat is always moving? I only I only really noticed it this time, but there's always like an invisible wind moving around the shoulders of his coat. So he almost he always looks like this dramatic figure that's constantly bizarrely moving, and it's because he's a tune. Well, yeah, and he plays it in such a way that he looks completely uncomfortable and un yeah. un not used to that human body. His his movements and you know the way that he sort of whips around when mm. he um he turns to look at the uh the LP player it's it's yeah. almost like he can't help himself but be this larger than life tune because a tune has to make people laugh and i love yeah there's that and i love the fact that the way he roots out roger is by saying you know no tune can resist the old shave and a haircut <laughs> so he's going around going dit, 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 dit. it's a just such a funny again a character-based idea two bits <laughs> <laughs> no pain no pain or when it, yeah. no, pain. no pain or when he's got the the lp and he's like he's here yeah. and then it he whips it he frisbees it i love yeah. the but it's coming towards the camera and then hits one of the weasels in the mouth it's so so fucking good he's such a great villain i feel like christopher lloyd has su- he like zemeckis had such a great run because he had doc brown yeah he had judge doom then he had Uncle Fester in the Adams Family movies. Oh, yes. You know, he's just such a great character actor. Do you want a sequel? Um, well, they've been threatening a sequel. Well, they've actually <laughs> been threatening a prequel for a yes, long time. Yes, they have, yeah. And who the prequel discovered sort of... Roger Rabbit? Yeah, who discovered Roger Rabbit? And it's like him at... Is it during the... No, it's during the Nazi... It's during the Second World War. Mm. And it's how he meets Jessica. She's been forced to do Nazi propaganda. She's a spy Um, for the Nazis. Yeah. And we see how he gets into show business. And then we discover that his father is Bugs Bunny. Bugs Bunny. (laughs) And that seems an odd... That seems an odd way to go. Because then that makes it all about Roger and Jessica. When really... This film is about Eddie and Roger and Jessica mm. are side characters. At the most, you could say Roger is a co-lead because his name's in the title. But really, Eddie is the lead. Roger is a, absolutely a supporting character. You need you need the straight man. You need that the guy, the fall guy. You know. So I think that if they did do a sequel, they would have to do something equally grounded. Mm. Um, and I can't really see. I don't like, gen, just generally, I don't like prequels anyway. I guess it's different for tunes because tunes can't, as far as we know, they don't really die. So, you know, that doesn't, it's kind of fine. There's no spoiler that they don't die. Um, but I think if they did a sequel, they would have to find somebody as good as um, Bob Hoskins because he's the one who really sells this film. He's the one who sort of gives wait to think you know when he's picking roger up and moving him around and and all this kind of stuff there's nothing actually there you know certain Mm. they used certain clever mechanics for things like when the goons are carrying guns around they've got that's actually on like the end of a robotic arm yeah but when when um bob hoskins is interacting with roger and jerking him around and stuff that's just bob hoskins yeah he just had this uncanny ability to 
interact with something that wasn't there and he could match his eye line a lot of the time apart from the examples you gave where he didn't <laughs> but that ability to give stuff weight and i just i don't know who can do that um as well as he did so well i don't know if the, the technology is shoddy enough yeah to give that real life weight because Often I'll watch those superhero movies, those superhero movies, you're right, Grandma, those superhero movies, and they say, like, Tony Stark or or uh, Peter Parker is, like, assembling some graphics in front of him, assembling the new suit, I'll have a bit of this, bit of that. It's all a bit, you do something on set and we'll make it up in the edit. Yeah. It doesn't seem to have any real-life weight or any sort of cadence to it. Mm. With this... Everything was plotted out so amazingly well. And there is a physicality to it because it's not shot on a green screen. Mm. You know, if you take away the animation, you've got a brilliant film noir. Yeah. If you take away the animation from Avengers, you've just got a bunch of actors in blue screen pretending that there's a dragon or there's a a big monster (laughs) or something. It becomes Dogville. Do you remember Dogville, the Lars von Trier? Purposely set on very basic outline chalk outline like a gymnasium floor and it was almost like the the bridge between theater and film Mm -hmm. that's what you have if you remove the technology from these modern animation films because that's all avengers and all that are it's just it's animation they're just very realistic cartoons and i think that roger rabbit actually hasn't aged partly because it is a period film anyway it's set in 1947 Mm. but it just hasn't aged because, I mean, it's like what we always say is like good story is good story. Good story so, is good story. And, you know, there's a timelessness to those zany cartoons. Yeah. Disney and Warner Brothers keep going back to those characters because they work. They're ingrained yeah. in our culture now for the past almost 100 years. And there's a really sad thing that's happened now where kids are so aware of this idea of CGI to the point where my cousin's kid was watching something or other, some CGI movie. And they said to my cousin, is that CGI or is that real? So like, it's become so so well known that there are Mm. these tricks that films do that actually, if they made a Roger Rabbit now, that charm, I think, wouldn't be there because we would know that basically anything is possible now. Whereas in the 80s, they really fought to get this film made mm. and no one knew if it was actually going to be any good at the end of the day anyway. That wow factor is a really important element to the success of this film. And it goes back to what I was saying in the Empire Strikes... I think it was the Empire Strikes Back episode that you can have a great technology. The technology is there to bolster the script, not the other way around, right? This yeah. is a brilliant film noir, an absolutely yeah. brilliant film noir. And even though only half this movie has animated characters in it, because it's so intrinsically tied to the world of animation, it feels like every frame has an animated yeah. character in. It doesn't. It's just under half the running time. But yeah. without the scenes of Eddie at his desk or Eddie and Dolores or Eddie mm. on the, the trolley train... It doesn't work. It doesn't work because the animation is there for a reason. And I think the same with the music. This is Alan Silvestri, who 
has worked with Robert Zemeckis quite a fair bit. Yeah. Right? Well, he this, did Back to the Future, didn't he? He did Back to the Future. This score is it's absolutely... It's fucking brilliant. It's mm-hmm. jazzy. It's swing-inspired. And it's not at all goofy. Sylvester clearly went, oh, well, this is a film noir. Why would I make it goofy just because it's yeah. a cartoon? It doesn't undermine the seriousness of the story. And I think this score could be ripped off this film, put on another film noir, and it would play the same. It would work. It, wouldn't, it doesn't have the cartoon elements in the main body of the score. Yes, there's, he wrote the, um, the, the, the theme tune for the fake studio in the film, mm. and he wrote the music for the fake film within the film. But everything else is just a brilliant score that evokes this sort of nostalgic melancholy. Did you know that the, the jazz section, they completely improvised all of the moments or, that we have, like Jessica Rabbit, so the moments where she's just like proper femme fatale, you know, in the in the in the Eddie's office, and you just get like that, like that was just the jazz section completely riffing, and just making it up. It wasn't scored. Well, that doesn't surprise me. That's what yeah the best jazz musicians do, don't they? Yeah. Alan Silvestri was having such a moment, and he's been having a moment for the past thirty or forty years. He did the Back to the Future music and not only did he do back to the future one and two he then took the themes and the scores from back to the future one and two and he rewrote them for back to the future three to have a western feel yeah that's genius so he did the back to the future trilogy he did roger rabbit flight of the navigator oh death becomes her forrest gump the walk and all the avengers films all the captain america films yeah yeah, he's fantastic. And I think I saw an interview with him where he talked about Roger Rabbit and he said that um, it was really difficult to pull off a noir score that also kind of hinted at the cartoon zaniness. And he was very modest about the whole thing and basically just said, if somebody said that I had created acceptable music for this movie, <laughs> that is the greatest compliment I could ever receive. <laughs> it's it, like, it's more than acceptable, mate. It's really it works. It's absolutely yeah. brilliant. And you know you're listening to it, Alan Silvestri. I don't know the first thing about music. I couldn't tell you if he's doing four bars, eight bars, whatever bars, no. right? You could just, you just hear it. You know it's an Alan Silvestri. A lot of the time people say the 70s and the 80s, that was John Williams' yeah. era. 70s, yes. But I think by the late 80s, Alan Silvestri was the hottest composer. I swear he did Father of the Bride as well. Yeah. Just and lovely, Father of the Bride Lovely too. warm. Yeah. Oh, Jack. Oh, no, it's Frank. Oh, Frank. Frank. <laughs> so what's the connection between Who Framed Roger Rabbit and The Shadow Glass? So I wasn't really thinking about Roger Rabbit while I was writing The Shadow Glass. I think my brain was very much submerged in films like Labyrinth and The Neverending Story. But actually, re-watching the film last night, I just think that Roger Rabbit is sort of like just in my genes somehow. You know, I feel like I've seen it, I watched it over and over and over again as a kid. And so I think that the that mixed media thing that it does 
the use of the IP, the tongue-in-cheek blending of genres, all of that is stuff that I tried to do with Shadowglass. And some might say I ripped off Roger Rabbit <laughs> without meaning to, but I definitely think it just had a massive influence on me in a way that I never really realised. And it's probably the reason I went on to love films like Scream that are that dissect the genre, play around with the genre. Um, they know what, what genre they're in. Um, they play around with sort of like audience expectations. So I think that that's, that's the thing that really influenced me without me even really knowing it. But also, I think that Roger Rabbit is probably the very first time I ever saw a movie studio, like seeing behind the scenes of a movie studio, which you just don't generally, you would never see that unless you're watching like behind the scenes um, making ofs and stuff like that. But in this film, it's very much a part of the story. The studios are are locations in the film. It's all about the the war between them. You get to see, um, you know, the soundstage where they make the cartoons. You get to see the offices, all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, I just think it, it kind of actually is quite a pivotal film in my genetic makeup. Um, and I can't believe it took me so long to realise that. <laughs> That was Who Framed Roger Rabbit, directed by Robert Zemeckis. Joshua, give us a clue as to what's coming up in the next episode. In the next episode, I'm going to be eating a baby Ruth. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and wherever else you get your pods so you don't miss that episode. And we're on Twitter at TornStubsPod. Come let us know what your memories of Who Framed Roger Rabbit are. We're off to the Ink and Paint Club. Until next time, I remain Robert Gershenson. I'm Josh Winning. That's all, folks.
Thank you.